0: Glad to have you here for week two of what we're calling Family Life. For six weeks, we're going to talk about all manner of relationships. Um, We're going to especially focus, um, as the name implies, on on, on what it looks like for a family to be a godly family under the authority of Jesus Christ, and what that means for our relationships, uh, especially with husbands and wives and with uh, parents and kids. And uh, those kinds of things, important things for us to talk about. It's, it's also important for us to know that that those relationships are a piece of the larger uh, the larger goal of us having re- relationships that all reflect the reconciliation that we experience in Jesus Christ. So, so those those kinds of relationships, in in a small way, are a part of the larger picture of what God's doing in the world. And uh, and so family life has to do with all of our relationships. Uh, so please keep that in mind today as we talk about uh, husbands. And wives. Um, We've all experienced that relationship, even if not personally by being a husband or wife, but by seeing our own parents. And and so preparing for that is a part of what we're talking about. And and, uh, some of you have been in marriages and and are no longer. And and many of you are in marriages. Uh, So these kinds of things are important for all of us to talk about. We'll jump in first at Genesis 3 today. Uh, Genesis 3 and Ephesians 5 is where we're going to be most of today. So if you're going to want to go ahead and Turn there. It'll keep keep that handy. It'll be uh, it'll be good for us to jump there in just a second. Before we do that, let's go ahead and and pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge first and foremost that you are holy God. That you are the Lord God Almighty. That you deserve every ounce of worship. In the universe. You alone deserve every word of praise and adoration from our lips. And so today, Lord, as we, we sing songs and we, we pray and we look into your word, we, we ask that the experience of being with the body of Christ today, that, that being a part of this community would give us a glimpse of your perfection and your glory that you would give us a peek into your beauty and your majesty this morning so that you would reshape hearts and minds that are in tune with your Holy Spirit. We ask that you'd give us mouths that that sing your praises and and spirits that that are made alive by you. And so we come before you in humility, on our knees, and a spirit that asks that you will hear our prayers, Lord. We pray for many things. We pray for spiritual power and for strength, for the draining work of a life of mission. We pray for the UT Campus Student Fellowship that has been an important ministry for many decades in Knoxville. We're grateful for the work of the Dardens who established that ministry. We're there for 40 years. And we continue to pray, Lord, for Glenn Kuhn, for his ministry there, and for his family to continue to minister to students. We think also, Lord, of the uh, Hisportic Christian mission and the church plant among the Portuguese in Atlanta. We ask that you would uh, use uh, Sergio and Marcia Santos for that work to reach uh, Brazilians in greater Atlanta. Help our work in supporting them, Lord, to be fruitful. Father, we pray for the Mount Bethel Christian Church. We pray that you would take over the reins of that body of believers and that you would be head and authority. And that if what is needed is a strong man of God who will lead with integrity, that you would raise up that leader and that you would strengthen other leaders in that flock to do the hard work of shepherding and leading. And that you would defeat those who care only for themselves. Lord, this church body knows many hurts and has many needs. We continue to pray for those who struggle with cancer or, or illness. We think of Rowena Littleton. We pray for the Salmeskis and precious Magdalene Joy. For Sam and Carol Perro's daughter, Tina. For Norman Starns, for Fran Adams, and for Donna Mead. We pray for those who are grieving losses. We pray for those who are battling emotional wounds. We pray for those who struggle daily with addictions that hinder their growth in you. Lord, we pray for this country and for its leaders. And so, Father, we want to never forget why you created us for the purpose of glorifying you with our lives. We are your faithful disciples, Lord, called to celebrate who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that you would help us to cultivate a place in our lives where your spirit would fill us and relationships with one another would help us grow that we would have relationships with one another in this family, with brothers and sisters in Christ, that are marked by love and mercy and grace. Lord, equip us to communicate the gospel with what we do and with what we say. Father, we give you all praise and glory. And we ask that it was the open your word, that you would feed us from your spirit, that you would make us men and women of prayer and word, That you would empower our women to be doers of good deeds, whose mouths and actions pour forth goodness and grace. And we ask, Lord, that you would embolden our men, strengthen our men to be kingdom warriors with hearts of steel, ready to fight the spiritual battle for souls. Send forth from this body of Christ, Lord, kingdom workers who care about your glory more than their own. We ask that you would remove the scales from our eyes, that we would have a personal vision for lost souls in our own family and in our community. And that you would teach us what it means to make disciples. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, marriage is crazy, isn't it? Marriage is a crazy phenomenon. Uh, any of you who have been married for any length of time whatsoever, be that a week or, or many decades, uh, because I know many of us in this congregation have been married for three, four, five decades and counting. And you know uh, you know personally, you know very well uh, that marriage is a strange phenomenon. Uh, the idea that two vastly, vastly different people, and I'm not just talking about my wife and I, but you know, that's what I'm thinking of, two vastly different people with different perspectives, different experiences in life, different gifts, different ways of thinking about the world can coexist without killing one another is is a miracle of the work of God itself, Amen. <laughs> I know many of you know that personally, and, and the range of emotions that we feel sometimes in, in marriage relationships is, is likewise crazy. On the one hand, on the one hand, you experience, uh, especially early on in a relationship, those romantic, warm fuzzies uh, for this man or this this woman, and you would do absolutely anything. You would do absolutely anything for him or her. At least that's that's how I felt in our relationship. And then, for the, in the case of my wife and me, uh, there are a couple times I would drive five to six hours twice a day just so I could be with her for, you know, a few hours during the day, you know, from Cincinnati to Chicago and back. I remember doing that and thinking uh, as I was writing the sermon, I, I would never do that now. <laughs> there, I mean, there's no way. There's just no way. I would sleep in, in, in between uh, because I couldn't do it like I used to be able to do that, you know. I am 39. I mean, uh, my wife did my laundry for me while I was in seminary. We weren't yet married, and and that's love. You know, I have $17 in my account. I'm eating ramen noodles three times a day. I have a full time job. I'm in like six classes, and we're supposed to have a dating relationship that's meaningful. And she does my laundry. I mean, that's love. In in, in and that feeling of you do anything for that person. And yet at the same time. Your, your close, intimate knowledge of this person you love means that you are especially gifted, shall we say, uh, at needling and cajoling and driving that person absolutely crazy. No one is remotely as good as the sarcastic Barb or the jerky comment as a husband or a wife. No, no, you know, you don't need to do that. You know. No, no finger-pointing necessary. But um, The craziness of marriage, this, this, this amazing relationship that God can use for the sake of his kingdom and his glory, is a struggle. And that struggle has been going on from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, in fact. And what it is, what it is at the heart, is a struggle for control. And you don't have to be married to know this. You don't actually have to be married to know that this is a struggle for control. You can see this and experience this personally as a child in a family. And I know many of us growing up saw how this played out in our parents' marriages. And I saw it in my own parents. And they were amazingly good at keeping their frustrations with one another and their struggle for control away from me. I am not nearly as good at that as my parents were. And my wife and I, you know, it it, it goes like this in a circumstance where we may be in the car, all four of us driving, my two kids in the back, doggy and I in the front, and and my wife may very reasonably, frankly, just ask me something like, did you call and change Alden's appointment? Silence. (laughs) Crickets. Did you call and change Alden's appointment? Well, no. No, I didn't. I thought you were going to do that, of course, is my response. And then she starts using, I know it's kind of annoying, logic, and and says, why would I do that when you're the one who's going to be taking him to this appointment? At this point, of course, I feel the need to remind my wife, um, as if she didn't know, that I'm busy and don't have time to take care of everybody on the planet. At least that's how I feel at the time. So I say something like, I don't know, because I'm always the one who always takes the kids to their doctor's appointments and their dentist's appointments and their veterinarian appointments. And, you know, which, of course, is ridiculous. But when you're in that struggle, you say things that don't even make sense. Like, I take my kids to the veterinarian, you know. That's the kind of scene that's played out every single day in relationships and in marriages millions of times over on this earth. Millions of times over. Every single day, the struggle of control. And the heart of this struggle is for this question of who is going to be Lord of my life. That's really what this struggle for control is about. This isn't just a question about whether I control myself or I control my spouse or vice versa. Ultimately, this is a question of whether God is in control. And this struggle for control goes all the way back to the beginning because of sin. And that's the first blank in the study notes there. Uh, The first few blanks there in the study notes on the back simply say that this, because of sin... Because of sin, marriage becomes a struggle for control. A struggle for control that is really about whether God is in control. In terms of both your own life and your marriage. Turn with me to Genesis 3. It's on page 2 in the Pew Bible. Here in Genesis 3 is where we see the first example of this struggle for control. In Genesis 3 here, the scene opens up in verse 1. And it says this, hint, hint, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So so Satan, in the form of a serpent, will come and he will tempt Eve by twisting God's word. uh, Satan, in fact, speaks directly to Eve. Look at this, verse 1. He said to the woman, this is where he begins to twist it, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, no, actually, he didn't say that. God's command wasn't, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. In fact, in Genesis 2.16, God says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So, so Satan twists the woman, uh, tempts the woman by twisting God's word here. And, and he lies by twisting God's command and notice that satan is the serpent is speaking directly to the woman that's important to note and my question is this where is adam it's important to notice here that it was clearly the man's responsibility to tell the woman of god's command we know this because because god tells this to adam before eve even exists Put that one in your back pocket and think about it for a while. God commanded Adam that he could eat of every tree in the garden, commanded Adam to eat of every tree in the garden but one, and his own wife falls prey to the very temptation that he had been commanded about. Before she even exists, he's commanded. So friends, what's really going on here is a problem of lack of spiritual leadership by the male. The problem of lack of spiritual leadership by the male is a huge, huge, huge problem. That is killing marriages. Frankly. And creating environments where control is much worse of an issue and taken out on the spouse and the kids in ways that you can't even begin to unpack because you're, you're unaware of it because of your own lack of spiritual leadership. We'll come back to that in a few weeks, but it's the number one reason in my mind why children in America are not following God like they should. It's the number one reason why marriages are floundering and hurting. Lack of spiritual leadership by the males. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, especially. Get ready, boys, because uh, we're going to bring it. So, back to verse 1. The serpent is speaking. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So Satan's lie was the suggestion. It was the subtle hint of God being a tyrant who doesn't deserve your obedience. That's what what Satan's suggesting. He's a tyrant who doesn't deserve your obedience. And he certainly doesn't deserve the glory that he claims to deserve. I mean, this is the the serpent speaking here. I mean, really, what what kind of a god is going to be a tyrant to be in control of you? That's that's what Satan's saying. That's, That's the subtle hint there. And that's really the issue at the heart of all of this. What a selfish god he is to tell you that you are not in charge of you. That's how sin starts in our life. (laughs) You don't know the truth, and you listen and give in to the lie. That's why it's important to know and love the Word of God. If you're not clear about what is true, you will fall prey to a lot that is false. You will easily fall for what is false. And that's exactly what the woman did here. That's exactly what the woman did, because no one's there to tell her any different. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Something's wrong in her translation. There's the lie, Lest you die. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. That's not part of what he said. He didn't say that at all. He just said, Don't eat of that one. Lest you die. It looks to me here like Adam didn't effectively do his job of communicating God's command to Eve, and so she caved in. God didn't say that they couldn't touch it. He said they could eat of any of the trees except for one. (laughs) Except for one. But the woman here is already getting sarcastic and and selfish. She's she's already usurping God's glory with her response in verse 3. She says this, why can't we touch this? I mean, seriously, can you believe this God who wants to control us? I mean, what what an unreasonable request. That's kind of what she's saying here. She's believed a lie and now is actually trying to get the serpent to sympathize with her, her plight. And, of course, Satan sees that and he seizes the moment. And so this back and forth between Eve and the serpent about this supposedly selfish God uh, becomes full-on gossip in verse 4. Look at this. Verse 4 says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Oh, they'll be opened, but for worse, not for better. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a temptation for Eve to be God to herself. That's the temptation, for Eve to be God to herself. This is the suggestion here that she is her own Lord and she doesn't need God and she doesn't need Adam to tell her what to do. It's the same conflict for all of us. Eve just gets to be the one that plays it out for us here. Verse 6 explains how this happened. It says, when the woman saw, and what she saw here were three things, when the woman saw, number one, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye, that's the second one, And and thirdly, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And remember the question, where is Adam? Here he is. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate with her the whole time. you hearing what we're saying? The silence of Adam. Mark it down. We're coming back. The silence of Adam killing marriages number one reason number two reason number three reason why our children are floundering why this nation needs help why churches 85% 94% if you include the demographics of population growth are dying in America we'll bring it on in a couple weeks We'll come back to that. The silence of Adam is is deafening. And it is no less his fault than hers. In fact, the placement of the blame seems to be no less his than hers. There is no indication in Genesis that Adam fulfilled his responsibility to teach Eve and to shepherd her in that situation. No indication. So the struggle between husband and wife is already in play. Who knows the reason why Adam didn't? But he didn't. So the struggle for Eve to take lordship over her own life and and for Adam to maintain control by his own silence, maybe that's what he was doing. But in verse 7, we see the effects of the struggle for control. It says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, not for the better, but for the worse. And now they're going to maintain this control. They maintain this control by hiding themselves, which is its own self-control, attempting to make up for their sin by hiding it should be something that they reconcile with God and with one another, but they don't do that. They think they can manage it themselves. That's the lie. That's the lie in every every marriage and in every relation. You cannot manage it yourself. Only with reconciliation that happens through the cross, that's marked by grace, that comes from people who are filled with the Spirit of God, only then does it really happen. You can't manage it. So verse 7, it says the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They're now, they're now ashamed of their sin, and the battle is full on. I mean, its it, guns are ablazing now. Look at verse 11. This is God speaking, following up with Adam and Eve, in fact, giving them a chance at redemption and grace. And God says, verse 11... Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you to eat? There's the opportunity. There's the reconciliation opportunity. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. (laughs) Adam's like, uh, you know. And then verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, it's her turn to, to go ahead and shift the blame. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. And because of the presence of sin, this kind of struggle would typify the marriage relationship from here on out, this side of heaven. And it's really fundamentally a part of all of our relationships. Jump down to verse 16, where God tells the woman, verse 16, Your desire shall be for your husband And he shall rule over you. And then he says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife instead of me and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The struggle is going to be there. The frustration is a part of the fabric of creation now because of sin. And the effect of sin that that tries to replace God's lordship of your life with your own or with somebody else's, will create constant struggle. Mark that. You or someone else being Lord of your life and not God will result in constant struggle because of the effects of sin. And the effect of sin that that, that tries to replace God's lordship is going to continue to make that struggle happen. There's a way of uh, sort of typifying this that I found here. That's uh, I forgot to put it in your study notes, uh, but I want to go ahead and read it to you. It sort of summarizes what's going on here very well. And I want to read this to you. I found it in my uh, ESV study Bible notes here um, and didn't put it in the study notes, but I want to read this to you that sort of typifies what's going on in this, this whole relationship in Genesis. It says this, These words from the Lord indicate that there will be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man, for leadership in the marriage relationship. The leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationships between husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall have now been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. This especially takes the form of inordinate desire on the part of the wife and domineering rule on the part of the husband. And the ongoing result of Adam and Eve's sin of rebellion against God's will has disastrous consequences for their relationship. Number one, Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him, which reverses God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. But two, Adam will also abandon his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife. Replacing this with his own sinful desire to rule over her. Thus, one of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is an ongoing damaging conflict between husband and wife in marriage that is driven by the sinful behavior of both in rebellion against their respective God-given roles. And their responsibilities. So so we see the struggle. (laughs) It's here in Genesis. We've experienced this struggle firsthand. Married or unmarried. But the question remains. How do I fix this? How do we fix. The struggle for control. Of one's life. The answer of course is the cross. And it's the same for any. Marriage relationship. As it is for any relationship generally. And we have to turn to Ephesians for that answer. So go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians. We're going to actually start in the first chapter in Ephesians. We'll get to Ephesians five here uh, in a bit. I want to tell you a little bit about Ephesians because because it's important for where we're headed with marriage and and relationships. Uh, There are two main themes in Ephesians, and uh, we have this written down in your study notes there, um, and we'll put it up on the, the, the screen here. Two main themes in Ephesians, and uh, it's the second one especially that we're going to talk about. Uh, these two main themes are: number one, Christ has reconciled all creation to Himself and to God. And number two, Christ has united people from all nations to Himself and to one another in His church. It doesn't say all people from all nations, but but people from all nations to Himself. And to one another in His church. That's the message of Ephesians. That the church, that the family of God, is that place where He demonstrates what reconciliation really looks like, and where God becomes the Father of us all as children. So it's the second point we're honing in on today. And if you're hearing echoes from last week's sermon, you should be. Turn back. Uh, turn a few pages here to. Uh, I'm sorry. Ephesians one three. We're going to start there, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. This is where uh, Paul starts to teach about how Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another in the church. So he starts to tell us this in verse 3, where he tells us what we have in the person of Christ. That's key to his whole argument in Ephesians. Everything that we have comes in him, from him, of him, in Christ, of the beloved. Various ways of saying that kind of phrase. Uh, We're not going to read it all, but look at verses 3 and 4 here. Um, Verse 3 begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, here it is, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, here it is again, in him before the foundation of the world. And here's here's the fix for the what is marriage and why do we have marriage question. It's this next phrase, underline, circle this. And even though this is about the church generally now, he applies it to marriage later on in Ephesians. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, of him, all these various ways that what we have in Christ in the cross, that defines all relationships, it puts us into the church and it means it's what characterizes our marriage as a place where we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the purpose of being chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In fact, in just the first 14 verses of chapter 1, Paul uses that phrase, in Christ or in him, 12 different times to talk about what we have in him and how that characterizes what we should live like after that. So the purpose of marriage is that phrase that we should be holy and blameless before him. And just because at this point in Ephesians, Paul is talking about reconciling people to him in the church doesn't mean it doesn't apply to marriage. Paul is talking in Ephesians about Christ reconciling and uniting people to himself and one another in the church. And that is why it applies To marriage. Because in Christ we have everything we need for reconciliation with God and one another. And it is that kind of reconciliation with him that enables us to be reconciled with one another. So your marriage is not what makes you a Christ follower. Being a member of this church may or may not. We hope that it does. But being a member of the church at large that is known to God as his children. That's what reconciles you to him. And so that's why it applies to all marriages and relationships. And he, de- he develops this theme in all of Ephesians, and we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 5. He applies the reconciliation theme to us as children in Ephesians 5, verse 1. Look there, is where we pick, that's where we pick it up here. It says this, therefore, in other words, because we're reconciled to him in the church by Christ, therefore, we are to be imitators of God. And then he says this, as beloved children. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Not as slaves, not as those who are fighting for control, but as those who are already under and submit to the authority of perfect and holy God. That's got to be there first. If that's not there first, whatever else we say about your marriage doesn't even matter. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, as those who are children following a loving and and, and providing father, as those who are children of God, those who imitate him, live this way, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this this is the model. And this is in your study notes, the next few blanks here. This is This is the model that is the crux of the matter for all of our relationships, especially here applied to marriage. Christ's sacrificial love for the church is our model for all relationships. It's why you have a relationship. You see, uh, the ways in which we wheedle ourselves into our own manipulative purposes for relationships are all about us. All about us. And Christ wants to turn that upside down and say the cross is the model for how you operate in your relationships with others. And we see this picked up in Ephesians 5:21 to 33. So pick up at 21 here. Because this is where uh, we see this especially applied to the place of marriage. And we're not going to have time to unpack um all of this today, but we will in a couple of weeks. Um, next week is Family Sunday, so we're going to talk a lot about children uh, next week. But we're going to pick it up in uh, talking about husbands and wives, especially uh, dads and, and uh, husbands there in two weeks. So pick up at verse 21. It says this. In my version, it uh, is starting from the previous uh, sentence. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence Uh, For Christ, some of you uh, may have a a sentence there that says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, The New International Version has it that way, um, which is, I believe, a better way to separate that um, from its previous section and put it with the next section. Remember, by the way, that the verses uh, were put there by a person. Uh, the verses are not inspired. The verses were put there in the 16th century. Um, so, so 21, I believe, fits with 22 and following. And that is the way that Paul applies what he talked about with Christ's sacrificial love to the place of marriage. And so it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it applies it to wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even just as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Wives are submitted to their husbands in respect for their husband's death to himself. Are you hearing that? <laughs> Wives are called to submit to their husbands in respect for their husband's death to himself. Themselves. As Christ died for the church, so husbands die to self for the sake of their spouses. How many men with integrity raise it up? I dare you. That's my number one way of thinking about my marriage. It's struggle for us to think that way and operate that way as if that's the first priority for us. And he says why, verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. This operates under the assumption that husbands and wives both are dying to self first. And that that mutual submission to one another comes out of a place of submission to Christ as Lord first. And that what that does is it creates a space in your marriage for God's will for your spouse, not yours, to take place. That's what doesn't happen very well. That's the real struggle. Are you as a husband, are you as a wife, thinking about your marriage relationship as a place that you can create, a culture you can create, an environment in your marriage and in your family and in your home, where your death to self creates A space for God's will for everyone else, for their growth, for God's purposes for them. Is that your number one concern? Because that's what Paul is saying for us, just as that was Christ's number one concern to die on the cross for you. That's a tall order. That's different than everything you've ever been taught by the world. And it flies in the face of so much of selfish, I want glory kind of living that we're used to. It sounds to me like Ephesians 1.4, that he shows us in Christ so that we should be holy and blameless. Which is why your marriage is about your holiness, not your happiness. Which is why the the, the goal of God's glory being made known in your relationships with your husbands and your wives and your kids is number one priority. Not you being happy. The irony, of course, is that selfless living on on behalf of your family and your, your, your spouse will bring you more happiness than you ever knew. This is about creating a place in your marriage for your spouse's holiness and blamelessness, his or her fitness to meet Christ and be with him forever in heaven. That's the goal. So lest you think that this is all about wives' submission to husbands, Paul spends three times as much, uh, perhaps because we need it, three times as much space directing the husband, starting in verse 25. Listen to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love your wives in the same manner as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're looking for a spouse, don't find anybody who is not willing to love you like Christ loved the church. That's what a real man will do to sacrifice for you. Don't don't listen to the other stuff. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then this next part sounds exactly like Ephesians 1.4 again. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the way that Christ loved the church and presents her to Father God. In the same way, applied to husbands, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. (laughs) Christ's love for the church is the model. Because we are members of his body. And we are members of his body because of his death for us. That's what makes us part of the church. That's what makes us a member in the body of Christ. Not your goodness or your fitness or your ability to do anything. It's only because of the death of Jesus Christ. And so then Paul reaches back to Genesis to explain that this is why God instituted marriage between man and a woman. Look at this, verse 31. This is where he talks back in Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It's the reason why marriage exists. For God's goodness being made known in you. First and foremost. In other words, everything I'm telling you about how to properly do relationships in your marriage applies to your home and to everyone else. The mystery is profound, he says. This is verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The model is Christ's love for the church. The model is Christ's love for his own bride, he calls it. So Christ's love for his bride should mark your love and sacrificial behavior on behalf of your family and your kids and your spouse the problem and this is what we saw in the garden with adam and eve the the problem is that that we consider something good only if it gratifies our selfish fleshly desires like a little kid thinks about something being good god wants us to live with good being something that is someone else's spiritual growth in christ the amazing project that is happening in God's reconciling us to Him through Christ is the motivating factor for living as if something is good if it serves another. Living as if something is good if it serves another. That's what Christ like sacrifice for the church looks like. And if our marriages were marked by that one truth, that one truth, that one truth can create a space where the goodness of God being made known is what happens. And you don't have to manipulate. You don't have to cajole. You don't have to take everything personally. In fact, you may be okay receiving things that are hard, not having to struggle for control, typifying, living out Christ-like sacrifice for the sake of your marriage. Father in heaven, we want to be people who, who are fundamentally changed. Not just in word, not just by what we say as if words Alone, make us one of your children. But when those words fit with our actions and behavior, because we respond to what we see you do in the cross for us, then we live life. Then we are truly alive. And Father, we ask that you would make of us people where uh, marriages and families are marked by the kind of love that was willing to go to the cross. Father, we ask that that we would all be reconciled through your blood so that marriages and families and parenting would come from a place that realizes that, that your sacrificial love that we didn't deserve, but that you gave to us, is what motivates us to love in the same kind of manner. Father, help us think about these kinds of things in ways that, that practically apply to our lives and that we can serve. That what is good is, is another person being reconciled with you and with one another because of the blood of Jesus. Give us that kind of gold and that kind of heart, Lord. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We want to just provide a time of response for you. If that sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross is something that you've not known personally,